Hi and welcome to the State of Talk podcast. My name is Yu Meigan, PhD student at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And for this interview, we have the privilege of virtually interviewing Professor Marjorie Hannes Goodwin through Zoom. Professor Marjorie Goodwin is also known as Candy Goodwin. I was able to talk with Candy about her working practices in data sessions, data collection, and data analysis. This interview format is only one style of the many types of podcast that the ISCA Publication Committee is hoping to present. Some of the larger goals of the Publication Committee, with the new website, the social media presence, and the forum newsletter, is to generate discussion, collaboration, and put some fire in our belly from these interactional discoveries that can only come from our kinds of naturalistic explorations. If you have any ideas or would like to participate, please go to conversationanalysis.org and reach out to us. We'd love your input on what we are doing, which is to establish a truly international connection between our EM and CA communities. So thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Candy. Thank you very much for joining our State of Talk podcast. And for taking the time to chat with us, do you want to first say hi to our audience? Yes, hi everybody from sunny Los Angeles. It's really great pleasure to be with you today. We're having very nice fall weather in the seventies. And by the way, today is Chuck's birthday. He's seventy-seven today, and that is a very lucky number for Japanese people, meaning longevity. Wow! Happy birthday to Chuck! I just want to give a very brief background to our new audience, that Candy, together with her husband, Professor Charles Goodwin, also known as Chuck, have a very special place in our field, EMC and video analysis. Their research has inspired many generations of young scholars, and I am one of them. Today is such a special day to do this interview and to celebrate Chuck's seventy-seventh birthday. We will follow Candy's memory to discover some of their ways of doing such kind of research. Candy, you might agree with me that perhaps one of the most distinctive feature of our field is the way through which we work with data. For example, we bring data to a data session where we share the data and discuss the data with others. And data session is a special working practice in EMCA field. So can I ask you where and when was your first data session? Well, Chuck and I were both doing field work、uh, at about the same time. So the first data sessions were between Chuck and me. I, in the nineteen seventies, seventy one, was doing field work in an African American community, and I transcribed. Uh, hours of tape between the children interacting. Chuck, at the same time, was working at the Philadelphia Child Guidance Clinic, and he was very interested in the nature of family therapy and interaction there. So almost every day when we got home from work or from the field work, we would have data sessions talking about the things that we had observed during the day, and so that was. Really, really fun, and provided the first experience.、Mm-hmm. How about other data sessions? 
with others? I was at the University of Pennsylvania and got interested in the data that I had, how children got from utterance to utterance in their everyday talk. William LeBove was on my PhD committee. So I went to talk to him. I showed him the transcripts that I had. This, uh, I transcribed an hour of boys and girls talk. Wow. And um, he got very excited and said, well, you know, you should really read the Sachs lectures. Oh. So then I, but he wouldn't let his own students, linguistic students, read the Sachs lecture. So I took these home. We devoured them. Um, and every night would talk about then the, the insights that Sachs had on uh, conversation and its organization. And we combined that with the data sessions that we had. Uh, other data sessions before the one that I want to mention with Gail yeah. were with um, at the University of Pennsylvania, okay. uh, the, the Center of Urban Ethnography, and there Goffman. LaBeouf and Gail Jefferson and some other participants like Deborah Schifrin uh, were participants. Malka so Yeager. Goffman was participating in those data sessions. Yes, yes. Oh, See, I Gail was hired as, as a postdoc uh, to work with LaBeouf's materials. Mm -hmm. And so we all had these data sessions. As a matter of fact, LaBeouf's first seminar was on conversation analysis <laughs> and i have the old notebook so i was looking through this and that was in 1972. we'd already taken courses with goffman about 1969. Uh -huh. uh, so we had a lot of familiarity with him but then uh goff uh Lvov invited us into his class and there gail was there looking over the data she was doing a lot of the transcription of, of Lvov's tapes as a matter of fact as well um, so that was uh, an amazing experience. And then we also were part of Goffman's seminars when he was formulating his ideas for relations in public and gender advertisements. And these were really like data sessions because he would bring materials there, put them up as overheads, and then we would all comment together about what was going on. And he invited uh, me to bring some of my tapes of children playing on the street also uh -huh. to uh, look at. So those are some very early data sessions that were quite informative as well. Yeah. And so could you please share with us some of your experience of having data sessions with Gil Jefferson? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> the, our premier... Uh, professor and mentor, Gail Jefferson. And so what happened was after we had met Gail in these classes with LeBeuf and Goffman, mm -hmm. um, we invited her and Malka Yeager-Drawer, who was the phonetician of Bill LeBeuf, over to our house. We would have dinner, and then for two or three hours, we would look at videotape. Uh -huh. And... and uh, this this was quite exciting. At first, we were looking at data Candy, that was. Candy, can I ask this videotape? Who took them? Um, was from. Okay, okay. So this, these were videotapes. The first one that was ever taken was um, some of you may have seen 
a Chinese dinner where people are sitting around a table right. eating together. Okay. Um, it has the cigarette utterance in it. I gave a smoking cigarettes love one one week ago today, actually. Oh. That was filmed by a friend of Chuck's, uh, who was actually the best man at our wedding, George Kudemeyer. He set up the camera and uh, arranged people so that we could see it was two couples and the children of the host family so that we could see everybody's bodies very, very well. And this was the first videotape that we worked on. Okay. Um, it, was, it was one that produced not only the cigarette utterance, but uh, a lot of Chuck's work on storytelling and um, other, other kinds. But this, these, were, these tapes, let me tell you, were transcribed by Gail. Okay. <laughs> Although the initial way that we worked was not to have a transcript, but to simply look at the video and to see what was going on. Yeah. And that was the excitement because Chuck would have an idea about something that he wanted to present about the emergence of an utterance through time, but it was not something that was necessarily fixed on a piece of paper. We were always, always focusing on the video. And Gail is the person who taught us to look at video data. Many people think of Gail as the premier person in terms of transcription. Yeah. But she was the premier person in terms of how to analyze video. Mm -hmm. She was extraordinary. She was brilliant at the way that she could look at it in ways that no one else could. Okay. And yeah, you, and you also started with video rather than the transcripts. Yes, yes. And so we would look at, at, the, at, at the video, then um, we would all take a hand at doing some transcription mm -hmm. of that. And then Gail would come back next week with more transcription that she'd done so we could, we could go a little bit further. But we were not initially, we were interested in the phenomena that we saw in the tape, not that was that was written on a piece of paper uh, or transcribed. That was, that was the way that we worked. And so we'd look at the videos. Uh, somebody would say something. She would comment on this. We'd talk about it. And she would lead us to looking at the video in new ways that were relevant to our analysis. Uh, that would certainly include something like ethnomethodology, although her training was not the classic kind of training that one thinks about. She was just a brilliant analyst. Um, and her experience of uh, having data sessions was, in a way, quite different from uh, other people that wanted to look at sentence completion and what happens in the next turn. She was very interested in what goes on within the utterance. And... Uh, as you may know, there, all of her work on error correction, mm -hmm. laughter, syllable by syllable production of laughter. Mm -hmm. um, uh, no sooner, no later, the way that you, you come in at particular kinds of closings. All these things were things that she was looking at as emergent through time. Um, so th those were, uh, and when we had the, the uh, seminar with yep. um, with LaBeouf and Goffman. Goffman was prone to say that laughter is flooding out. But Gail said, oh, yeah? 
let's look at it syllable by syllable and see the way in which when somebody goes from ha to ha, the next speaker will immediately in the next syllable go ha ha, and the way in which you get this collaborative co-construction of laughter right. in its mind. And these, the things that she was interested in looking at were ones that were simultaneous with the talk and not necessarily occurring at a turn boundary. That's why we got very interested in looking at things like I was looking at mutual monitoring. So in the midst of somebody producing a statement um, and providing some sort of evaluative commentary, we would look at the way in which people would nod, shake their heads in some sort of, oh, wow, appreciative commentary. And if that were not forthcoming, the way in which people would add new segments onto their talk in order to achieve the kind of collaborative uh, production of assessment that was sought by the, the principal speaker. So that was very important. And of course, in Chuck's um, uh, analysis of, I gave up smoking cigarettes love, well, one, one week ago today, actually, what he was interested in was the way in which when a speaker produces talk and does not necessarily receive the kind of uh, uptake that he was projecting, somebody just says, mm-hmm, uh, or looks down, the way in which a speaker can uh, contingently change the speakership, go to a new recipient to try to generate the kind of responsiveness that he wants to the utterance. So this was very, because Gail was already into looking at the internal organization of terms uh, and looking very specifically at phonetic uh, production of talk, it was a wonderful uh, alliance with her to be able to look at the way in which a sentence emerged continuously through time as speakers and hearers worked together to produce the ongoing utterance. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was totally novel for CA because instead of looking at turn transition, we were looking at what was occurring in the midst of a turn with the bodies uh, of participants as they collaboratively built the contingent world that they were building. It's very inspiring. I can really say that how these data sessions with her really um, had, had an impact on your and track's development of your interests. So did Harvey Sachs also... Um... Before that, let me, let me play a little tape for you. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is a tape that I happened to find last night when I was looking through some of the tapes that we have. And this was Chuck describing to Lorenza mm -hmm. uh, her influence on us. Okay. And so it's, it's Gail... I mean, the easiest in the way you could talk about Gail, oh, she invented the tracings, boom. But that's almost like saying she invented overlap brackets. What you have to get into is not just her technical innovations, but the way that her mind and her work and her mm -hmm. discussion were shaping us. Not like the hypnotist, not so much without us knowing, but she was... And, and, and Chuck mentioned their tracings. Let me tell you what Gail did. This is why I say she was one of the co-founders of video analysis. Mm -hmm. She was very interested in the way that bodies were aligned in position vis-a-vis -vis one another so that we would stop the tape, the reel-to-reel -reel tape, at a particular point, 
she took a piece of saran paper, saran wrap, put it over the screen of the TV, and then would very carefully outline the bodies as they were. And that's what we see in Chuck's book on conversational organization, interaction between speakers and hearers. There are some drawings there that Gail did um, to try to document the turn uh, by turn ways that bodies work together, not just at uh, turn transitions, but in the midst. And even you can have a repair that's totally done through bodily interaction and not just uh, through verbal interaction. So we, what we really want to stress so much is that we owe everything to Gail for getting us to look in new ways at how interaction proceeds contingently from moment to moment. The way that, we, that she described it, and we thought about it, was that she planted a garden, we were her plants, and she allowed us to flourish in any way that we wanted to. She did not direct us. She led us to see phenomena in the data. But she, did, she was not commanding that we had to do something in any pre-prescribed way. So she was the perfect mentor. When I did my he said, she said work, I actually would write more comments per page than I wrote per page. This is, she was so incredibly generous. And we want people to know also that it was Gail who was doing all these uh, transcriptions for auto discussion, mm -hmm. for Placia, mm -hmm. uh, for the backyard picnic um, with Kurt and Mike. And for all of our data, as well as LeBov's, she was constantly giving of herself and her time to make these beautifully robust transcripts available. Also, for me, with my African-American kids, uh -huh. you see the complexity with which they talk and talk in overlap with one another. But she was able to help me to, uh, to see these things. And just another comment is that Harvey Sachs said, oh, you know, here are some, some tapes. There's a lot of overlap, but don't worry about that. That's, that's just too messy. Enough. But, of course, that was the phenomenon that Gail wanted to investigate. So she, because she was doing the tapes, she would discover things that pe other people really didn't have the time to sit and to uh, luxuriate with <laughs> with the, with the uh, tapes, what was going on. So it was, this is her brilliance because she spent so much, so many hours just working over the data and being really, really familiar with what the data was. Yeah. So I would, that, that is just uh, something that why we are the persons that we are mm -hmm. is a result of Gail's looking inside the turn at phenomena that no one else was examining and wanting to look very closely at the bodies and how they interacted with one another through time in a very contingent ethno way, I'd say. So that led to things like my paper on by-play, mutual monitoring, yep. the interactive construction of a sentence in everyday talk. That's, those are some of the things. Yeah. Now you wanted to know about 
uh, Harvey Sachs? Yeah, I was asking, I was going to ask, like, uh, did Harvey Sachs also attend these data sessions? In oh, well, we'll see, Harvey, this was at the University of Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and he was at UC Irvine. Yeah. Um, but in 1973, we attended the Summer Institute of Linguistics in Ann Arbor, and Harvey Sachs and uh, Emmanuel Shagloff gave a seminar in conversation analysis there. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and this was a time also when uh, other scholars were there, um, uh, Bill and Bob, I'm um, Gumper, it's just a whole, lot, <laughs> a whole array of different interesting people. So one day, um, uh, because we knew Gail, Gail said, well, Harvey, why don't you come over to their apartment? Chuck has some interesting things to, to show you. So Chuck, uh, so he came over to our apartment uh -huh. and showed him the cigarette utterance and talked about how it's not just a speaker speaking, but a speaker meeting a hearer uh, that was important in um, the, the work that he was looking at. And this really <laughs> immediately, Artie said, oh no, I gotta call Manny immediately. He was so excited. He was really excited because this, this was an idea that uh, he, that had not been uh, dealt with before. So he, um, then after that, we had regular weekly seminars for the time that we were at the Summer Linguistic Institute with yeah, I that you have so many home data sessions in your apartment, and that's really cool. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. It was fun. We'd have dinner first, and then you know have the data session with you. So that it was very collegial and and fun. And and so then Harvey gave us. He said, "Oh, I have videotape. Why don't I give it to you?" And then we went out and we filmed um, my relatives in Ohio that live nearby, and that was the Kurt and Mike stories. And uh, we filmed a moose picnic there. So it was Kurt and Gary in the backyard picnic in Ohio and, and various different events at uh, uh, around Ann Arbor that were going on. <laughs> yeah, so that, that, was, that was fun. So that's how we got interested in collecting a little bit more data that we have. Yeah. That's, that's very good. So I was very lucky to be able to attend the data session in the cooperative lab organized by Chuck and you. So for many years, this lab already started with a combination of online and offline format. There are many people from abroad attending through Zoom. As you know, that uh, in the times of COVID-19, we get used to Zoom, but uh, it seems that cooperative lab was so innovative to have this much earlier. Do you still remember the idea of setting up this uh, setting up this lab? Well, initially Chuck had this lab when he almost the first year that he got to um, UCLA uh -huh. because we learned at the Summer Institute of Linguistics that it was great fun to gather people together. Uh, students who wanted to learn more and to have looking at things together instead of just one-on-one, -on -one, why not have people together? Because it was just so much more fruitful because we're a community. We all learn from one another. So almost from, and this was done as an overload for Chuck. He wasn't, it wasn't part of his paid coursework. 
So he, he set that up almost immediately when he came. The earliest uh, time that we can remember having collaboration via Skype was about in 2016. Mm -hmm. 2016. Yeah. Um, and what would happen was we had a lot of visitors who came to UCLA, and the highlight of the attending, I mean, a very big thing for them was to be able to attend Chuck's labs. You know, so subsequently, when people went home, you know, they would want to be part of these labs, and we would um, connect with them via Skype. People like Johanna Philipson in Denmark, um, Virginia Flood, who was uh, visiting from Berkeley for one term, but then had to go back. Uh, Rachel Chen in, in Berkeley, Pauline Bhopal in Paris, Amanda Bateman in Wales, uh, Asta Chakait in Sweden, Boris de Leon in Mexico, and Eric Montera in Tampere, Finland. So these people wanted to continue, so we um, continued interacting with them. Uh, yeah. That really shaped uh, an international community. I really loved that. So apart from data session, of course, collecting data is one crucial aspect of our work. Your work together with Chucks has been not only showing us fantastic analysis of data, but also showing us the diversity of data corpus that you have collected. So can you share with us your first time of video recording? Was that for your thesis project? Okay. Well, and of course, my very first fieldwork experience with he said, she said, and with African-American community was done with a tape recorder. Because in 1970, the, the porta pack weighed anywhere from 15 to 50 pounds. So it was not very portable. It was not very portable. You know, not very easy to, we had to actually build a cart in order to do things like uh, our 4th of July picnic on my street in Pittsburgh or the news picnic, things like that, because you could not very easily uh, portably carry this video equipment around. Yeah. Um, but uh, nevertheless, we did do video recording at the Moose Picnic in Ann Arbor, um, in suburban Pittsburgh at a block party, uh -huh. uh, in New Jersey, Long Island, for and Long Island for family reunions. And an, a really fun time was when we went to Esposito's meat market in the Italian market in Philadelphia. And we told them, that, oh, we're interested in the work that people do every day. And, and so we got these fantastic conversations between the, <laughs> these men uh, about dating uh, <laughs> um, in, in this meat market. And they would punctuate the, the story with, throwing a piece of meat into a bat. <laughs> it, was, it was just really, really fun. Yeah. Um, then other video recording I did was, I was interested in seeing um, how kids played a game across a number of different uh, parts of the country. So I, and something that was ubiquitous was playing hopscotch. And so this provided the ability to look at a situated activity system within a very contained strait. I was interested in seeing um, how children played the game because I, I was interested in countering some of the ideas about 
um, that Piaget had about how girls' legal sense is far less developed than boys. So I, I did a lot of uh, recording of uh, kids playing hopscotch and how they were positioned vis-a-vis -vis one another. Um, th those were some of the, the earliest uh, record times that we recorded. Yeah, yeah. It, it's very fun. And I, but I remembered when I myself went to field site and conducted the first time video <coughs> recording, my angle was terrible. And so when you did that, did anyone teach you how to use those device? Um, when, like, anyone give you advice to do that? You know, Chuck was already working in the Philadelphia Child Guidance Clinic, so he had quite a lot of uh, experience doing video in a more con contained space. But he kind of <clears throat> evolved his own methods for doing the video recording, actually. Yeah. <laughs> And the idea of having an omnidirectional microphone or uh, was very important. We, we did learn from people at South Carolina who were sound experts that the most important thing was to gather very good sound. Initially, we couldn't improve on the sound. So that, that was really important advice that we got. Um, and uh, then using lavalier microphones really allowed you to get very... Um, wonderful sound external microphones were important and he talks about some of this work in journal of pragmatics 1980 yeah, he's always talking that the sound can't get better when we go home so gets the best sound in the field mm. right 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 so that those were those were some of the thing ways that we learned from other people um, who were doing recording and then just Chuck's own experience at the Philadelphia Child Guidance Clinic. Mm -hmm. So could you share with us some of your very challenging or difficult experience of data collection, for example, some refusal from the participants? We, we never had a refusals like that because we would always check it ahead of time to make sure it was okay to do it. Mm -hmm. But um, it was very challenging at points when um, I was trying to videotape kids playing softball or, or soccer <laughs> or volleyball, because I had to, at some points, I would get hit on the head by the, by the ball. So that was, that was pretty challenging. Okay. Um, also, it was emotionally hard at points when we would see, I would see children bullying other people. That was a very difficult kind of sense. Yeah, okay. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so that was... Um, and then one time when we were doing a shoot at the San Jose airport, um, we didn't have headphones, and so we didn't realize that we had lost, we didn't have any good sound. Oh. My the microphone was broken. That often happened in real life. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, we had to, walking around on the, on the tarmac, had to watch out that we weren't, you know, getting in people's ways as, as they were going about their, uh, their duties um, at the airport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you were a co-faculty member of the very influential research project at the Center for Everyday Lives of Family at UCLA. 
So um, this center managed to record, um, as far as I know, like thousands of hours of data. So who were able, who were responsible for these data collections for that project? Yeah, Chuck and I were some of the core videographers. Uh -huh. And yeah, we, it, was, it was my most fun experience was doing this videography for the, for the family project. Uh, because almost you had to kind of intuit where was going to be the next action. How could you get your camera positioned so it was not obtrusive, but able to capture fine details of the face and gesture? You went uh, to their families, right? You went to their families. Everybody. Yes, yes. Yeah, we were, uh, we, um, there were teams of researchers. We'd always go out in a team of two people mm -hmm. uh, working together. And some of the most fun I had was uh, with Heather Lloyd going out and, and we'd experience this and then coming back. Oh, do you believe what they allowed us to film? You know, <laughs> incredible. Uh, kinds of interactions in bed, disputes, um, all in, in bed with parents, that is. Okay, um, and also we did some of the uh, documentation of the photography because there was also a project looking at documenting objects in the house for an archaeology project, which was Life at Home in the 21st Century, which produced a very interesting book. So we documented four days in the life of the families, going with them to school, being there when the kids woke up, being there when the kids went to bed. Um, the whole idea was how does a family balance work life and home life? And how are these things contingent and, um, and uh, intersecting? And some of the most fun things were looking at the spontaneity of families in uh, creating a sense of wonder for children. I have a paper called Occasion Knowledge Exploration. And there was a family where almost every utterance was kind of wordplay and getting the children on board for exploring how they might understand the world in different ways, how animals interacted with other uh, animals, the kind of beauty of family life where people are trying to create an environment for exploring the world in new and creative ways. And that, that was like the most fun and like sent me off in <laughs> whole new directions and thinking about things. Well, I absolutely loved every minute of working with the self project. Also because we would have weekly meetings we talk over things together with the whole interdisciplinary team, people from, from uh, education, uh, psychology, applied linguistics, uh, medical anthropologists, archaeologists. That was quite inspiring where we get new ideas about how to look at all the different realms of human life as people would present their work together. Eleanor Oakes was the designer of the project and she was just so giving of her time in organizing that and allowing it to be this amazing experience for the researchers. And we're so grateful uh, to have had that opportunity. It was funded by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. So, yeah. I can really tell 
that's how Candy enjoyed this project and how she enjoyed working with this data that's unfortunately our audience can't see your facial expression, gestures. I can really tell that this is a fun and inspiring project for Candy. It's again, it's very inspiring for me as well to learn um, about your experience of data sessions and data collection. Now, I would uh, like to conclude our interview by talking a little bit more of your data analysis focus. I know that recent years, um, together with um, um, Professor Asta Sikaiti in Sweden, and of course with Chuck, you have developed a perspective for the analysis of emotion that focuses on how emotion is organized as social practice. Uh, within this uh, human interactions. In particular, you have a very strong interest in touch and affect. Could you explain a bit more on how you got to this focus? What motivated you to do this? When you look at families, what impacts you is the way in which they're showing care, love, and concern for one another. This was such so different from looking at the peer group where there was conflict continuously. Not that there wasn't conflict in the family, but the way in which parents would put children to bed with these loving affective touches and, oh, I love you so much, picky voice overlaying the gentle touch that the parents would give the children as they were putting them to bed. And these, these were just such beautiful, caring moments. Also, I, I got interested in the fact that it was not only the mothers, but also the fathers that were doing this kind of beautiful, affective, care-related interactions. And we got very interested in the two gay families, where there were two gay dads who were part of the project, and they were especially caring in the way that they dealt with their children. So it was beautiful to document the ordinary ways in which uh, gay people interact with children, the ways that fathers are so effectively rich in the way that they um, want to develop their children's uh, understandings and knowledge of the world and also their close bonds with one another. And so this, uh, and then because Jurgen Street in 2011 had a workshop called The Body Shop, uh -huh. I first got interested in looking at touch. So I developed some of the analysis looking at uh, creaky voice and touch in collaboration and looking at the interactive organization of a hug because it's not only that talk is sequentially and simultaneously organized moment by moment, but also actions such as hugs can be seen as contingently, interactively, sequentially co-organized and orchestrated. So I was interested in seeing how bodies come together and intertwine in deep affective moments and going beyond just looking at talk per se, to look at something that's really has its focus in the intertwining of bodies and voice. Yeah. Would you like to share with us what projects are you working on recently? 
Okay, one of the projects that I'm working on now with Mario Deng, who was Chuck's heart doctor, and Federica Raya, who is uh, in education at UCLA and happens to be the partner of Mario Deng, is a project called Living Towards Death. And uh, what happened was when Chuck became the patient of Mario Deng, Mario asked if the sessions that he had, that they had together could be <clears throat> recorded. And so Chuck said, oh, why not? <laughs> we're always recording what we're doing. So, of course. So we have two years of tapes um, of interactions within the hospital, but also in gatherings at their house and our house, and also phone calls, mm -hmm. um, looking at how uh, Dr. Deng was socializing Chuck into how to deal with death as a part of life. Mm -hmm. He's, <clears throat> he and Federica have written a book called Relational Medicine, and some of, the, some of the important concepts that I got this from a video that Chuck, uh, when he was talking about at, uh, the importance of Mario at our retirement event, he says that for him, the doctor was not just a technician, but also a healer. The doctor has to take into account the life of the patient, um, uh, when And instead of just saying, oh, there's nothing more you can do, what Mario said, which was said by the oncologist when Chuck had uh, terminal uh, uh, eye melanoma, uh, saying something like it's over, what Mario said was, focus on the life that you and Candy still have together. Focus on being in the present. Um, how do you live with the body that you have now? How do you have a meaningful life? He wanted to, he was asking. That's beautiful. Um, and um, it was very meaningful, Chuck said, because I was left not with a sense of dread, but with a new appreciation for all that I have. Uh, and so that was um, that, just an amazing experience. And then Chuck was constantly writing to his students. They were responding to him. Uh, stories about how Chuck's ways of handling and facing death helped them to navigate this very difficult time itself. Uh, so that actually when Chuck, during the last week, when uh, Chuck was getting weaker and weaker, and all along though, he came to accept death as an inevitable feature, an inevitable feature of life, and with amazing calm, gratitudes, and grace. And we've shown some of the videos of Chuck and his doctor, Dr. Deng, to doctors at UCLA in Dr. Raya's class. Uh, and they have said that this is really important for teaching doctors new ways of understanding how to deal with patients, not just as bodies, but as, as people to uh, consider in the entire uh, spectrum of ways that could be considered. So, um, 
and we, we do have a paper out on that, and we're going to be, which is uh, called uh, Forms of Touch During Medical Encounters with an Advanced Heart Failure Doctor Who Practices Relational Medicine. And there, we were also interested in touch because at very crucial moments that are very emotional, the doctor would reach over and touch Chuck's hand and, and continue with that loving touch, grounding him in knowing that there was someone here who supported him, was with him, it was helping him in this journey uh, towards death. So I'm now looking at uh, storytelling over this two-year period, uh, future possible stories, past stories, imagined stories, mm -hmm. um, in interaction between Dr. Deng and Chuck, and, and the kind of affiliative interaction that they had together also with Dr. Raya. So that's, that's the main project that I'm, that I'm interested in now, basically because it's wonderful to be able to listen to Chuck so much. Yeah. And so beautiful interactions. And I think that it could be helpful for other people in their own confrontation of death and to know how to navigate this. But other projects, I'm working with um, people like uh, you may, <laughs> Sarah Goyko and Uliang, uh -huh. uh, on a project on complexity, looking at how participants navigate multiple uh, participation frameworks simultaneously, dyadic and multiple. I'm finishing a retrospective on my gender and language res research for a gender and language journal. Uh -huh. I'm looking at footing in interaction with Chill, the guy the father of Chuck, who had only three words, and, and how he, uh, very playful interactions that, that they had together. And also a project on joyful engagement with C.C. Ford, Barbara Fox, and Chase Raymond, uh -huh. looking at easing in the midst of interaction. Wow, that's a lot of projects, Candy. We look forward to reading your new work. Finally, Candy, may I take this opportunity to seek any of your advice that you would love to give to the young generation conversation analysts? Go out and explore the world. Be an ethnographer. Just the same way that you may was. You discovered oh. new worlds that nobody knew anything about before your research. And this is the beauty of the younger generation. They take on such innovative projects. They're not afraid. They're, they're launching into things that no one's ever explored before. And I think that is, that is what is so beautiful. And I think that the younger people have so much to teach the older people about how to do innovative, creative research. Because what, one thing that Gothman always told me was, don't be hypothesis testing, be hypothesis generating. You're generating new ideas as we speak, as we, as we live. You know, so I think that Younger researchers are, are carving out new pathways, exploring new dimensions, and we have so much to learn from you. And I think that it's really important, as Robert Frost said, to take the road less traveled, and that will make all the difference. Oh, that's very beautiful. Thank you very much, Candy, for saying that. This is the end of our interview, and I want to thank again, Candy, for taking the time to chat with us. And thank you very much for inspiring us in many ways. And thank you, our audience, for staying with us. And we hope you enjoyed this session with Candy. See you next time. Bye-bye.